0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the House Republicans coming together today to elect a new speaker, Mike Johnson, after Trump had torpedoed the Republican whip, Tom Emmer. Now, with Trump's blessing since Johnson led the effort to hand Trump an unelected second term, a more presentable and youthful MAGA faithful with an agreeable low-key persona, has the gavel. Joining us to assess the victory of this hard right-wing unity candidate, now the highest-ranking elected republican in the land, is Alan Lickman, a political historian who teaches at American University and has studied both the American right and the presidency. The author of The Case for Impeachment and The Keys to the White House, A Surefire Way of Predicting the Next President, His prediction system has correctly predicted the outcomes of all U.S. presidential elections since 1984, including the 2016 election when, against all odds, he predicted a Trump victory. His most recent book is 13 Cracks, Repairing American Democracy After Trump. Then we'll get a strategic overview of the Middle East on the Brink of a Wider War, with Iran and Hezbollah threatening retaliation if Israel invades Gaza and Israel determined to eliminate Iran's proxy Hamas, even if it means going after the source in Tehran. Joining us is Nicholas Harris, a Senior Director for Strategy and Innovation at the New Lines Institute, who from 2016 to 2017 served as the 10th First Lieutenant Andrew J. Bacevich Jr. USA Fellow at the Center for New American Security. He's the author of From the Bottom Up, a strategy for Middle East military support for Syria's armed opposition, and recently conducted an extensive study of Iran's proxies in the Middle East for the National Defense University. Then finally we'll speak with Juan Cole, a professor of modern Middle Eastern and South Asian history at the University of Michigan. He is the author of the blog Comet at JuanCole.com and the author of The Ayatollahs and Democracy in Iraq, Engaging the Muslim World and most recently, Muhammad, prophet of peace amid the clash of empires. We will discuss the re-emergence of the Palestinian statehood issue and the likelihood that Israel will annex the northern half of Gaza, furthering diminishing the prospects of a two-state solution. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, Background Briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And Joining us now is Alan Lickman, a political historian who teaches at American University and has studied both the American right and the presidency. He's the author of The Case for Impeachment and The Keys to the White House, A Surefire Way to Predicting the Next President. His prediction system has correctly predicted the outcomes of all U.S. presidential elections since 1984, including the 2016 election when, against all odds, he predicted a Trump victory. His most recent book is 13 Cracks Repairing American Democracy After Trump, and he has a weekly broadcast every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern at Alan Lickman YouTube. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alan Lickman.
1: Thank you, Ian.
0: So, Alan, we're not predicting Trump to be the next president, although, unfortunately, you could make the case that he's already captured the legislative branch. He's got his guy in there that came in today, Mike Johnson. Prior to that, Tom Emmer was the biggest vote-getter in the earlier ballot. But then Trump torpedoed him by calling him a globalist rhino who didn't sufficiently kiss Trump's rear end, which is a hideous image to begin with. So, in other words, the guy's going to could recapture the presidency. He's now essentially controls the House and he's already captured the judicial branch. So, and he hasn't. <laughs> how did this happen? How did this ridiculous person, this grotesque joke, be on us
1: it's truly frightening but let me give some good news except for the mike johnson uh appointment and we'll talk about that in a moment it's been a very bad week week and a half for donald trump three of his lawyers uh jenna ellis uh, mr cheeseborough and uh powell have all pleaded guilty in the georgia rico case and agreed to testify truthfully. Apparently, Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's former chief of staff, who was intimately involved in the machinations uh, to overturn our democracy and uh, cancel out the results of a legitimate presidential election, was given immunity by the special prosecutor, uh, Jack Smith. Meadows knows all of the inside dirt. And apparently he's been interviewed three times already by the staff of the uh, special counsel. And that puts Donald Trump in additional very grave jeopardy. His guy, Mike Johnson, got elected speaker, I think unanimously, by the Republicans. Remember the Republicans rejected Jim Jim Jordan, the bomb-throwing chairman of the house judiciary committee mike johnson is no better and may in many ways be worse he's not a bomb thrower like jordan but he's much smarter much shrewder and much more able to achieve manipulations he was one of the chief architects of the efforts to overturn the 2020 election uh helping to craft that bogus baseless lawsuit coming out of Texas that sought to overturn the results in four swing states that voted for Biden. He was an active lobbyist in trying to get other Republicans to sign on to that bogus lawsuit. He is also staunch in his opposition to rights for women, minorities, and those who Republicans believe their lifestyle is Repugnant. He may be soft-spoken, but uh, he is no better than Jim Jordan. And by the way, this idea, oh, you know, maybe the moderate Republicans will stand up. There really aren't any more moderate Republicans. You know, you can call them moderate only because they're not so wildly extreme as representatives like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gaetz. But in no objective sense of the term are their moderates, and the big lesson here is this is Donald Trump's Republican Party, and even if Donald Trump were to leave the political scene, the malaise within the Republican Party would continue to exist because they've abandoned, we can talk about that if you like, everything they profess to stand for, and are now simply a group devoted to grabbing and holding power in order to make their rich donors and friends richer and to uh, extend their social controls.
0: And uh, Johnson is uh, 51. He represents the 4th Congressional District in Louisiana. He's in his fourth term in the House, having been elected in in 2016. And as you mentioned, he's a very hard right uh, conservative who has gotten a 92% rating from the American Conservative Union and a 90% rating from Heritage Action. But again, he is also one of the loyal, loyal MAGA people who went to bat for Donald Trump and tried to get Donald Trump an unelected second term. So this man does not believe in democracy.
1: No, he doesn't. And, you know, with Johnson at the helm, our democracy is clearly in peril. And this extends really throughout the Republican Party. As I mentioned, they've abandoned everything they profess to stand for, except grabbing and holding power. Uh, Personal morality, personal responsibility, out the window with Donald Trump. And it earlier, really, had been out the window with Newt Gingrich, Bob Livingston, Dennis Hastert. Uh, Gone. Respect for the Constitution and traditional institutions, they're the first crew to attempt to repudiate the 200-plus year tradition of the peaceful transfer of power. Fiscal responsibility, they call for that only when they're out of power. Donald Trump and earlier George W. Bush and earlier H.W. Bush and Ronald Reagan rang up some of the biggest deficits in the history of the country. Limited government, well, their proposal for a national abortion ban would be the biggest intrusion on the private lives of Americans in the history of the country. States' rights, the abortion ban would overturn the abortion laws in the majority of states that provide for abortion rights. Uh, Free enterprise, forget it. They support Subsidies, export assistance, Uh, Trump has imposed tariffs, uh, crackdowns on unions, all ways in which they've abandoned free market enterprise, again, to support their business friends and business donors. So you can't just look at Donald Trump. You've got to look at what's happened to the entire Republican Party. represented by Trump, but really a trend that's been going on for a long time.
0: Well, Trump put out a message today on his Truth Social. Congratulations to Representative Mike Johnson. He will be a great in caps, speaker in caps, make America great again in caps. So again, does this mean that this guy uh, who has a friendly face and is certainly, as you say, not a short-sleeve bomb thrower like the, like Jim Jordan. I don't think he's going to have any of the scandal, that associated particularly with Dennis hasted and also with the wrestling coach who turned a blind eye to 177 young wrestlers at Ohio State, being molested by the team doctor. So, you know, he's married to Kelly Johnson. They've been married since 1999. They have four children. So, you know, he's got a kind of clean persona, but that sort of disguises his hard right record. So is he going to shut down the government then? Well, he'll do whatever Trump wants, but Trump seems to want chaos. He will do whatever
1: Trump wants, whatever is good for the Republican Party. And the fact that he's got a clean record and isn't a bomb thrower makes him even more dangerous. You know, Jim Jordan would have been such an obvious target to go after, much harder to go after Mike Johnson, because there isn't a hint of scandal, he seems to be a decent family man and is soft-spoken, but don't be fooled by any of that. He has no more of a commitment to our democracy and to people's rights than uh, Jim Jordan did. Whether or not they shut down the government will depend solely on their political calculations. Do they believe that shutting down the government will hurt the Biden administration, perhaps by plunging the economy into recession, or do they believe it will hurt the reelection and election of Republicans in Congress, both the House and the Senate in 2024? Because as we saw in past government shutdowns, uh, the Republicans in Congress are likely to shoulder most of the blame for it. So they're not going to make a calculation for what's good for the country. I mean, you know, they have no respect for our constitution or our democracy, but they'll make a hard political calculation, and I can't say as yet where that's going to come down. And let's not forget, you shut down the government. Not only are you jeopardizing the economy, jeopardizing national security, shutting down critical services, you are also imposing enormous hardships on you know, the large number of government employees, some of whom may never get paid. And even if they eventually get paid, they're going to be suffering enormous hardships because many of them live from paycheck to paycheck. So it's a human tragedy, shutting down the government beyond the broader implications as well.
0: But in terms of Mike Johnson's record as being the main spear carrier for Trump to overturn the election. He took the Texas case and was the most important architect of this Electoral College attempt to award the election to Trump. And at the time, on December the 9th, Johnson tweeted, President Trump called me this morning to let me know how much he appreciated the amicus brief we are filing on behalf of members of Congress. Indeed, this is a big one. So there he is being a Trump toady but yesterday, when he was asked, once they, the caucus nominated him, he was asked about his record of shutting down. You helped lead, just from the ABC reporter Rachel Scott, she said, you helped lead the effort to overturn the election results. And then suddenly <laughs> the Republicans standing around behind Mike Johnson all jeered and booed, and, and this dreadful woman from North Carolina shouted, shut up, shut up. And then Johnson smiled, shook his head, and then said, next question. So that doesn't bode well for transparency with the press.
1: There'll be no transparency from uh, Mike Johnson or the Republicans because, uh, you know, they don't want to fess up to what they did. Just going to do it again. Uh, And with Mike Johnson in the speakership, they're in a much better position to try to thwart the legitimate results of the 2024 election. Uh, think of how close they came in 2021 to shutting down the electoral count in the Senate with unimaginable consequences. But for, you know, a, a few brave Capitol police and some, you know, fortunate contingencies, the coup was averted, but the coup came extremely close to succeeding. You know, democracy is precious, but like all precious things it can be destroyed. The first golden age of democracy was right after World War One. You know, throughout history democracies have been very rare. But after World War One about two dozen democracies existed. By the early to mid nineteen forties that number was slashed in half and you didn't get a big revival again until later in the 20th century and now in the 21st century democracy is in decline as well so we cannot be complacent about our democracy and it is you know tragic beyond belief that someone who has no respect for democracy but only wants to see his partisans control the government is now in one of the most important positions in uh, American government.
0: Well, in his speech accepting his victory today, Mike Johnson, um, of course, praised Israel and said, we're going to stand by Israel and get the legislation passed right away. But he didn't mention Ukraine uh, in terms of a struggle against autocracy versus democracy. So how is Biden going to navigate this $105 billion package that he sent to the House? At least they've got somebody that they can send it to. But uh, It's going to be sense? very
1: difficult because Johnson and the vast majority of Republicans don't have respect for democracy. In fact, you know, admire dictators like uh, like Putin, who Trump has repeatedly praised. Who has, you know, elevated in comparison to the American President Barack Obama? They've all embraced this awful dictator Orbán in Hungary. You know, it used to be at one time Republicans were staunch defenders of democracy. Look at George W. Bush. What did he proclaim after 9/11? That America has to stand as a beacon for the world in democracy, and that while we were against terrorists. We are not at war with Islam. You know, how far has the Republican Party come? In essence, they've reprised the America First movement of 1940-1941, led by the anti-Semite Charles Lindbergh, which said we should not even give aid to the Allies resisting Hitler, and there will be no problems for the United States if Hitler took over all of Europe, you know. Arrant nonsense and we're seeing the same arrant nonsense again that somehow an aggressive murderous dictator like Putin intent on expanding the Russian empire poses no threat to democracy and security in the United States.
0: Well Alan Lichtman I thank you for joining us. I, I, I dread what's coming with this house controlled by a puppet of Trump's uh, and do you have a last exhortation here? I mean, we Let me can't think, admit one last defeat. Thing.
1: Yeah. You know, what Trump can not control is the legal process. You know, Judge Chuck made it very clear. You're no different than any other defendant. You are now in control of the legal process, and your political priorities do not triumph over that. And the cases are so strong against him. You know, Trump can huff and Trump can puff, but he can't blow the courthouse down. And once you get into court, all of this political bluster counts for zero. You've got to present real evidence supported by facts. You can't just bluster. And he is in big trouble with, I think, all of these criminal indictments. Plus, I think he's going to be hit with ruinous, uh, economic consequences as a result of the civil case that uh, the New York Attorney General has brought against his business. and
0: And today he got fined $10,000 for uh, violating the gag order in the New York case. So I thank you again. Alan Lickman, a political historian who teaches at American University. He studied both the American right and the presidency. He's the author of The Case for Impeachment and the Keys to the White House, a surefire way of predicting the next president. And his prediction system has correctly predicted the outcomes of all U.S. presidential elections since 1984, including the 2016 election when, against all odds, he predicted a Trump victory. And his most recent book is 13 Cracks, Repairing American Democracy After Trump. And he has a weekly program every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern at Alan Lickman YouTube. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with a strategic overview of the Middle East on the brink of a wider war with Iran and Hezbollah threatening retaliation if Israel invades Gaza and Israel determined to eliminate Iran's proxy Hamas even if it means going after the source in Tehran. You look
2: like an angel Walk like an angel Walk like an angel Talk like an angel But I got wise You're the devil
1: in disguise For yes you are, devil in disguise mm-hmm.
0: You fool me Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Nicholas Harris, who's a Senior Director for Strategy and Innovation at the New Lines Institute. And from 2016 to 2017, Nicholas served as the 10th First Lieutenant Andrew J. Basevich Jr., USA Fellow at the Center for New American Security, and is the author of From the Bottom Up, A Strategy for U.S. Military Support for Syria's Armed Opposition. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nicholas Harris. Thank
3: you for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Nick. And the extent to which Iran can cause mischief and grief uh, seems to be underestimated. Now, they've they've basically issued a red line. Iran's foreign minister on October the 15th warned that if Israel invades Gaza, it's highly probable that many other fronts will be opened up. And then the supreme leader, also echoed that, stating that there uh, shouldn't be any expectations that Iran will hold back militants if Israel attacks on Gaza persist. So are they bluffing? You
3: know, fundamentally, Iran has a dilemma that it has to solve. And that is that so much of the Islamic Republic's uh, ability to mobilize its proxy network of militias that it has spread across the Middle East, which includes in Lebanon with Hezbollah, in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen with the Houthis, and its partner, if you will, Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Gaza. Iran has to show to its proxies That it's willing to confront Israel in this current crisis. However, Iran also does not want to get into a situation where it is in an active war against the United States. Now, my assessment is that fundamentally, the Iranians do feel a bit more uh, forward leaning or aggressive because they have supported Russia and the Russian military campaign in Ukraine. And as a result of that, the Iranians have a closer relationship to Russia than they've ever had. And if we take an even broader viewpoint, China, which has tried very hard not to get involved directly in this crisis in the Middle East, but has made many public statements that we could uh, classify as being pro-Palestinian and supportive of the Palestinian cause, wouldn't mind seeing the United States bogged down in the Middle East again. So I think right now, Ian, we're in a very delicate moment where we could plunge into the abyss of a wider regional war because of miscalculations on the Iranian side and on the American side, the U.S. trying to send the signal to Iran and to the broader region uh, not to escalate the situation beyond a straight, if you will, Israel versus Hamas conflict.
0: But for the longest time, there's been a shadow war between Israel and Iran, right? And the Israelis refer to this as the octopus strategy, where they have been attacking the tentacles, uh, which are the proxies, but will they proceed against the head of the octopus inside Iran itself?
3: Well, this is the other conundrum that we see in this conflict, which is that fundamentally Benjamin Netanyahu is a cautious leader, and he's always been a cautious leader, although he has been positioned himself to be um, Mr. Security within Israel, and he has um, worked very hard on the international stage to emphasize Israel's um, long-term competition and with Iran and to emphasize Israeli national security uh, policy making, uh, concern that Iran could be an existential threat to Israel, especially uh, Iran's potential uh, nuclear program. Fundamentally, Netanyahu has to make a decision as well, which is if in the event that a conflict in Gaza were to metastasize into a potential second front between Hezbollah in Lebanon and Israel, and the Israelis would have to confront a sort of multi-axis, multi-vector challenge from Syria, as well as potentially also from Iraq and Yemen coming from Iranian proxies, does Israel strike Iran? Because that fundamentally changes everything, and it risks bringing Russia into the conflict. It risks bringing in China, in particular, um, something that I know the U.S. administration is worried about, some sort of these clandestine sort of cyber methods that the Chinese and Russians can do, which can support the Iranians if it were to come to that. And so I think you know, one of the elements that is underplayed in the sort of the, the discourse on this current crisis is that it can very quickly metastasize into a, a conflict that brings in multiple players from outside of the region. And the Israelis know that. And because the U.S. and Israel are so strongly connected together, the Biden administration is not only supporting Israel um, very, very closely, but is also actually having U.S. military advisors help the IDF plan its potential campaign in, in Gaza, as well as Britain in U.S. military hardware, um, especially anti-air defense systems, as well as marine, r- rapid reaction forces. We have two aircraft carrier strike groups. Um, you know, th- this is one of those dynamics where Netanyahu doesn't want to be too far out in front of Biden in terms of, the, of what happens. However, he has his own domestic political considerations to attend to. And this is where I think there's a, a huge question.
0: But, I mean, at the moment, Hezbollah is, is actually tying down Israeli forces on the northern border. And that may be a strategy in itself. But if the land invasion happens, which the U.S. is trying to delay uh, to get more hostages out, but I'm pretty sure the, the Israelis are pretty determined. They believe that they can essentially eliminate Hamas and then basically hand over Gaza to the U.N. and to whichever Arab states want to reconstruct it. That seems to be their strategy, whether or not that's realistic or not. I guess we'll find out. But if the Hezbollah pulls the trigger, I mean, as, as bad as Hamas's missiles have been, they've been—they'll be kind of a nuisance, like a mosquito, compared to the more accurate and powerful missiles that Hezbollah have. They're, they're going to rain down on all of Israel, and that's going to complicate Israel's ability to retaliate, isn't it?
3: Well, this is the core of the Iranian strategy. Fundamentally, the Iranians watched, learned from, re- learned from it, the defeats, essentially, of the Arab state actors that had confronted Israel in previous wars in uh, 1967 in the Six Days War, in 1973 in the October War. And the Iranian strategy is basically f- premised upon having multiple proxy organizations present in areas that border Israel um, and supplying those proxies with the capabilities uh, to deploy uh, tens and hundreds of thousands of missiles um, and rockets, fundamentally altering the ability of the IDF to take on one uh, opponent at a time and to bring overwhelming force to bear. And to your point about, okay, Hezbollah in the northern front, as the IDF refers to it, in southern Lebanon and northern Israel, by sort of continuing to put pressure on uh, the IDF from that front, does it prevent the IDF from being able to have the resources and reserve man and woman power that it needs uh, to fundamentally essentially dis- destroy Hamas? Uh, its military capabilities, its infrastructure, its governance capabilities in, in Gaza. And, you know, this situation as we, as we see it now is in many ways playing out as Iran would hope because there is a fundamental challenge to both the United States and Israel which result, revolves around the fact that in a time when the United States is trying to manage a NATO allied response to support Ukraine in Europe is trying to prevent China from becoming more aggressive in the South China Sea and to expand its influence in East Asia now it has a huge major crisis inside the Middle East and you know fundamentally it is a domestic political issue for the United States and Iran has knows this there are at least 500,000 uh, US dual nationals in Israel according to the State Department you could have tens of thousands of U.S. dual nationals that are actually combatants in this war, mainly on the side of Israel, but also some that happen to be on the Palestinian side uh, and the Lebanese side as well, which is you know an underreported element of this conflict. And so it's a nightmare for the White House. Uh, it's a nightmare because it could be a shatter point, and Iran knows this, and beyond Iran, Russia knows this, and beyond Russia, China knows this that a metastasizing conflict from Gaza to Lebanon to further abroad not only places U.S. personnel and U.S. citizens in danger, which is a major concern, including the hostages uh, that Hamas and Islamic Jihad and other actors have in Gaza, but also places the entire U.S. geostrategic ambition, which the Biden administration has put front and center in its policy thus far in the administration, at risk.
0: So how does the Pentagon see it then? Do they have the capacity to deal with a a widening war in the Middle East, at the same time support Ukraine? There's also the possibility of a war breaking out between Azerbaijan and Armenia, with Azerbaijan threatening to invade into an exclave that they have inside of Armenian territory. So given the possibility that Israel would like to go strike the head of the octopus and settle this thing once and for all, are they going to drag the U.S. in? I mean, uh, you were saying earlier, Nick, that they don't have the ability to fly their planes across Iraq and Turkey. Uh, I think they, at one point they had bases in, in Georgia that they could attack Iran from, but I'm not sure that that's viable. So just from the point of view of the Pentagon, how many wars can the U.S. fight at once?
3: Well the heart of the issue is that the Pentagon would not want to be fighting a war in the Middle East to begin with. And the the challenge here is that all the incentives at the strategic level for the Pentagon has been to de-emphasize the Middle East, to emphasize um, Europe and Asia. And there are you know, massive down downstream implications, if you will, in terms of. US. readiness, if the. US was brought into a, a war in in the Middle East, another large scale war against a state actor in Iran that has multiple different ways that it can uh, strike at US personnel, both using its proxies as well as using its own uh, forces, as well as its own uh, significant supply, of standoff weapons, so medium and long term, long range uh, missile systems. And uh, the U.S. does not want a war in the Middle East. And what it's trying to do now is essentially deter or intimidate, as some have said, uh, Iran from making a decision to escalate and making a decision that, you know, if Israel was to "Quote unquote, go big in Gaza and do a large-scale military campaign in Gaza. That it, Iran wouldn't expand multiple different fronts against Israel within the United States, and you know beyond that, just also beyond the United States, other Western Western allies. France, for example, has had uh, many of its dual nationals uh, killed by Hamas in this latest crisis, um, and." The, the The massacres that Hamas perpetrated inside Israel, and the fact that you have hundreds of hostages uh, held by Hamas, uh, many a uh, significant number of them, dual nationals, has also sort of awakened in the West, if you will, uh, and you close US allies, France, United Kingdom, others in Europe, uh, a sense of this being an ethical struggle. And an epical struggle that gets tied into the counterterrorism wars of the 2010s, especially against ISIS. And so I think, Ian, that's another element here that gets underappreciated: is that um, there's a sort of sense of civilizational conflict that has really entered into the thinking of not just the publics but the leadership of the West as it looks at this. And so I begin to, I begin to wonder. If this isn't what the Iranians wanted all along, you know the ability to have the Iranians and the Saudis talk so closely together in the in, as this crisis has gone on, the fact that the Iranians are going to the organization of the Islamic Conference and that the Iranians are, are you know essentially just based on you know what we hear from places like Egypt and Jordan, places where the brand, if you will of Iran and the brand of Hezbollah in particular really took a hit, because of Iran and Hezbollah's role in supporting the Assad government against the armed opposition in Syria, that's changing. And on the so-called Arab street, the rise of support for Hezbollah, the rise of support for Iran as a sort of major confronting actor against the United States Israel uh, is, is happening. And it's a real element here. And it's really entering into this course of a sort of civilizational standoff uh, that can have massive geopolitical effects, especially as it relates sort of the U.S. hope to develop a new international order or, or to revamp the international order based upon U.S. and allied um, prerogatives.
0: So just in closing, in other words, the Abraham Accords, Iran has found a way to neutralize, if not end that Initiative, but hasn't this theocratic leadership always had this kind of religious apocalyptic goal of essentially not so much replacing the Saudis as the custodians of the holy shrines, but in effect showing them up and being the ones to tell the Arab world and the Arab street that we're the ones that can liberate Al Aqsa in Jerusalem and we're the ones that we're the more authentic heroes of. A Muslim revival is that that 's always been their strategy hasn 't it to, well that's
3: fundamentally why. that that is true I mean the Islamic Republic of Iran has holds itself up as the the vanguard of a you know effort by the Ummah or the global Islamic community to, in their point of view, liberate Jerusalem and liberate Palestine because from their point of view. All of all of Palestine, including Jerusalem, the third holiest city in Islam, is a is a is a trust to the Ummah, to the to the global Islamic uh, community. And that has always been the rhetorical flourish, if you will, of the Islamic Republic. And you know, we saw this as well in 2021 with the uh, war that happened between Hamas and Israel then. We're seeing it now even more magnified. Uh, at a certain point, Iran is also facing this dilemma, and this is where things be, can become very dangerous, Ian, in that it may have to, quote-unquote, use it or lose it. And I know this is something that you know concerns folks that do U.S. military planning, is that there reaches a point where the rhetoric ramps up, the capabilities are built, and the publics are zeitgeist of the publics that are that are combatants in the conflict is so raised that decision-making happens in such a way as it escalates into conflict. And this, I think, based upon the U.S. response we've seen and just how forcefully the U.S. has tried to deter Iran, indicates to me, and based on what I'm hearing and what we're seeing and what's being played out in public, that there is a major concern that the Iranian leadership especially where you have Supreme Leader hamenei who en- is entering sort of the end phase of his life, and you have a kind of conservative, hardcore, Islamic Revolutionary God Corps, a government that would take his place or an actor that would take his place after his death, that in some ways this current crisis could be viewed as the legacy building moment for the Islamic Republic with all the pressure it's come under in the recent years from internal protests and the fact that in many ways, the geopolitics of the region had been going against it. And so this adds a significant degree of um, uh, of difficulty to the U.S. response. And you know, we will know in the coming weeks, depending on how the IDF campaign plays out, the degree of risk that the U.S is willing to take to to showcase that it can stand strongly with Israel and to address the horrible massacres that Hamas committed uh, on October 7th and uh, to free the hostages that Hamas and other actors in Gaza took but that from the broader geopolitical geostrategic perspective when we start talking about what does the world order look like 20 years from now how much risk they're willing to take at the White House
0: Well, just in closing, Nick, there's nothing more dangerous than apocalyptic religious nationalism, and uh, we're on the brink, and I thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Nicholas Harris, who's a Senior Director for Strategy and Innovation at the New Lines Institute, and from 2016 to 2017, Nicholas served as the 10th First Lieutenant Andrew J. Bacevich, Jr., USA Fellow at the Center for New American Security, and he's the author of From the Bottom Up, a strategy for U.S. military support for Syria's armed opposition. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing the re-emergence of the Palestinian statehood issue and the likelihood that Israel will annex the northern half of Gaza, further diminishing the prospects of a two-state solution.
1: No one likes us, I don't know why We may not be perfect But heaven knows we try. But all around even our old friends put us down. Let's drop the big one and see what happens. We give them money, but are they grateful? No, they're spiteful and they're
0: hateful. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Juan Cole, who's a professor of modern Middle Eastern and South Asian history at the University of Michigan. He's the author of the blog, Inform Comment at JuanCole.com, and the author of The Ayatollahs and Democracy in Iraq, Engaging the Muslim World, and most recently, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. Welcome to Background Briefing, Juan Cole.
2: Thank you so much, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Juan. And there's a real possibility that once Israel engages in a land war in Gaza, that will cross a red line that Iran has already made clear, and so has Hezbollah. So do you see this war widening?
2: I think we can't uh, rule out that it could widen, and to some extent it already is widening. We, we've, had, we've seen uh, uh, over a dozen attacks on uh, U.S. troops. Uh, on bases hosting US troops in Iraq and Syria. Uh, In one of them, uh, 20 uh, US uh, military personnel were were, uh, slightly injured. Uh, And uh, so, you know, there are regional repercussions to this. But, you know, uh, we also should be cautious. Hezbollah talks a good game, but it is you know, both a party and a militia. It has a position in the Lebanese government. And I think the rest of the Lebanese uh, are telling it that y- you may not drag us into another war with Israel, uh, and it has to worry about its future position in in, in its own country, uh, you know, getting involved in all this.
0: So, but when Lebanon is, of course, a failed state and it can't take much more punishment, it, we're overwhelmed by Syrian refugees and corrupt warlords dividing the country, etc. So how much though is there a thread here in terms of Iran's ability to what they call strategic depth, particularly in Syria? I mean in effect Iran is on Israel's border at, both in Syria, Lebanon and in Gaza. And it's little wonder that the Israelis have been paranoid about Iran and see that as the main enemy. So if things get out of hand, do you think Israel will go after the source, Iran?
2: Well, I think there's real doubt that the Israelis would or could uh, attack Iran. Uh, you know, even the ability to uh, to get Israeli fighter jets over Iran is in doubt. Uh, They need to be refueled. They need to go over countries like Turkey or Iraq that would object. Uh, So, um, you know, I I think that if there were a big conflict between uh, Israel and Iran, it would be via those proxies that you mentioned rather than direct.
0: Well, how much though are the proxies containable, if that's the right word? I mean, Hamas obviously did this hideous attack on Israel that's provoked this latest war, and it doesn't look as if Iran knew about it. One of the people I talked to said that uh, the reason that Iran was not informed is that their security services have been so penetrated by Israel. What do you think? Do you think that the IRGC, the Kurds, Hezbollah, and uh, Hamas, given their fanatical nature in many of these organizations how much are they driving the ship here or does the the Ayatollah the supreme leader control everything
2: well I, I think the uh, you know when you enter a war again as you as you know as well as I do that things spiral out of control so we have to be prepared for the possibility that this conflict could widen but uh, the, the Hamas leadership uh, has admitted uh, that a very small coterie of uh, leaders, including of the mil- military wing, the, the Qassan brigades, took this decision uh, to launch this, uh, uh, and I think you correctly called it, hideous attack on, on uh, Israel, and, uh, which mainly targeted uh, Israeli civilians um, by themselves. Uh, they, they not only didn't, you know, consult with uh, with Iran. They didn't consult with people in Gaza. Uh, it, it, it was the action of, of a, a small group of, you know, apocalyptic uh, uh, fanatics. And uh, I, you know, personally, I, I, I'm not sure anybody else wants to be dragged into this uh, uh, if, if they can possibly avoid it. Uh, so. I think uh, you know the second phase of of this conflict, where uh, Hamas has baited uh, the right-wing Israeli government into uh, war crimes in Gaza and intensive bombing of uh, civilian uh, neighborhoods. uh, uh, You know, has has put Israel in a bad light uh, in much of the world, Uh, and there is would be pressure uh, on some groups and from some quarters. intervene. Um, But again, I I think that there are constraints because, for instance, uh, Hezbollah does have uh, positions in Syria from which it could theoretically uh, shell uh, Israel, but uh, Syria is militarily under the control of Russia. And um, I don't think Mr. Putin wants that kind of trouble uh, with Israel. Uh, so I, I think that he would rein in Hezbollah in that regard. Uh, and uh, again, with regard to Lebanon itself, uh, the rest of the country, as you say, uh, it's been plunged into, I think, 30% of the population is now in poverty, whereas this was a prosperous country at one point, uh, and it has very large numbers of these refugees from Syria. Uh, the the uh, central bank uh, was was looted by the head of the central bank, uh, so the country has no currency reserves. Uh, it, it, it's not in a position to fight a war and uh, even to, to to withstand one. I mean, I think the Lebanese economy would be collapsed by by such a thing. And and Hezbollah is is again, it's a Lebanese entity, and, and uh, the, the leadership. Uh, must know this. So uh, I, I've been struck, actually, by how quiet uh, Hassan Masralla, the head of Hezbollah, has been uh, through these days. And I think that is uh, that is a result of the very difficult position that he's in. That uh, he has made these pledges of solidarity with the uh, Palestinians and with Hamas, but uh, he's not in a position to uh, to fulfill those pledges uh, without attracting an enormous catastrophe to his own country.
0: Well, it does seem that uh, President Biden is doing everything he can to avoid a wider war. At least that's the signaling, the way I see it. He's also delaying Israel's ground invasion, uh, which again, at least Hezbollah and the Supreme Leader and the Foreign Minister of Iran have all said that that was a red line for them. Whether or not that's posturing or not, we I guess we'll find out. But my understanding is Israel's strategic aims in Gaza are to basically kill Hamas and then basically hand over Gaza to the UN and to whichever Arab countries want to pony up and reconstruct. Is that a realistic strategic uh, goal, do you think, Juan?
2: Well, no, it's just not. not to, no plans that the Israelis have for the Palestinians are realistic. Uh, the, as I understand it, what they'd like, what the Likud party, the ruling Likud party, would like to do, is to depopulate uh, northern Gaza, uh, and to um, crowd the 2.2 2 million Palestinians into southern Gaza, uh, and then to destroy the networks of uh, tunnels under Gaza uh, with bunker-busting bombs and make the north uh, part a kind of a demilitarized zone, like between the two Koreas, uh, and then to to secure uh, Sidarot and the southern Israeli cities from further Hamas incursions. Uh, but that's a very big, sink plan, uh, and uh, whether it can even be accomplished is in severe doubt. And U.S. military experts uh, uh, well, like Peter Mansour at Ohio State, who's a military historian and was in uh, General Petraeus' shop in, in Iraq, has have warned that uh, you know a, a land invasion of of Gaza is simply not going to be a walk in the park. Uh, the, the Israelis will be exposing themselves to guerrilla warfare, to back alley fighting. Uh, and it's not clear that uh, that what the Israelis say they want to do can be accomplished. If it, if it were accomplished, it's not clear that it, it, would, it would have a long-term impact, a positive impact on Israeli security.
0: Right. But the mindset in Israel, at least amongst its leaders and its military leaders, is, you know, we just have to finish this once and for all. And there seems to be a real temptation to want to try and eliminate Hamas, which, of course, ironically, is Hamas's covenant, is to el- el- eliminate Israel and the Jewish Stayed in the Jewish people, and also it may even extend to the fact that they talk about the octopus that you know the tentacles are Iran's proxies, and go after the head of the octopus in Iran itself. That it may not be entirely realistic, but it seems that that is the mindset, at least amongst a lot of the leaders, and and particularly this uh, Likud party.
2: Well, I think the, you know, the Israeli public and the Israeli leadership are are raw and angry and, and understandably so about what happened. And so a lot of plans are being floated. But, you know, if we think back to the aftermath of our own 9-11, uh, there were all those big think plans by Paul v. Wolfowitz to overthrow the country, the, the governments of seven countries and uh, Uh, We were going to uh, make Afghanistan into a a liberal democracy. And, uh, uh, you know, having those thoughts and being that angry as to want to change the situation is not the same as being able to do it. And uh, uh, I think things will look different in a few months uh, when it becomes clear that these big think uh, plans may be dragged Israel into some untenable uh, tactical uh, pursuits.
0: Well, curiously and ironically, I guess for the Israelis or for at, least, at least the Israeli right, is that the Palestinian issue is coming back into publics and the global consciousness, is it not? And is there any way that you think that this coalition government in Israel could tie any kind of end game in Gaza with a real promise to deal with a two-state solution?
2: No, the, the, Ian. There's no two-state solution to be had. Uh, there, if you count the annexed territory of uh, East Jerusalem and its surroundings, uh, there are probably seven or eight hundred thousand Israelis settled uh, uh, squatting on uh, on Palestinian property in the Palestinian West Bank. Uh, the place, if, if you know, if you mapped it out, it looks like Swiss cheese. There's no state. There's no state to be had there anymore. that that's not that's not possible. Uh, no, I, I mean, there are only three outcomes here. One is continued apartheid where the Palestinians are stateless and without rights, and the Israelis rule them militarily or at least surround them militarily. Uh, or uh, it, it's not completely impossible that there would be and there are people working towards this in the West Bank, uh, another big expulsion of Palestinians. And, of course, some on the Israeli right would like to expel the uh, people in Gaza into the Sinai Peninsula and Egypt. Uh, that could happen. Uh, it, it, it would be have horrible consequences and ones that would not necessarily be good for Israel. Uh, and the, or for, or possibility for Egypt, is, I would think. Or, or for Egypt or Jordan, which could be destabilized. Uh, and the third possibility is, is a, is a one-state solution, where uh, Palestinians ultimately are given Israeli citizenship, and it becomes a multinational state. But those are the only three uh, outcomes that I can see. And the most likely one is, is decades of further apartheid, which, of course, is not sustainable, and we'll see these kinds of explosions from time to time. Uh, but because it's not a, not sustainable, but it, it, it you know there's this tendency on this issue for the American elite to kick the can down the road. And the United States is the only one that could really solve this problem. If the U.S. put all of its political uh, uh, you know, power into an attempt to resolve this thing once and for all, I think it could. But there's no will uh, in the Biden administration to do that. Uh, they're, they're, they keep Mouthing these platitudes about a two-state solution, and they keep letting the uh, Israelis uh, send squatters over to take Palestinian land in the West Bank. So, uh, the, the U.S. is the main block uh, uh, to to any uh, resolution of this thing. And whenever the United Nations Security Council has tried to pass resolutions that would punish Israel for uh, war crimes or for uh, uh, violating international humanitarian law with regard to the Palestinians, the U.S. has vetoed it. Uh, so the Israelis, you know, have been put in a position where they can do anything that they want. The problem is that, you know, their their capacity uh, to deal with this problem is, is much less than, than they think.
0: Well, the, certainly, if they have... Hot wars on all of their borders. I don't think uh, even the IDF can handle that, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, the the Israeli elite believes that the Palestinians can be handled, that we can go, they can go on uh, settling the West Bank, they can go on keeping uh, Gaza under uh, uh, this economic uh, blockade to keep it weak and to keep its people poor. And that this can just go on for decades uh, without any problem. And in the meantime, they can do high-finance deals with uh, Abu Dhabi and uh, and the the Saudis. And that vision is simply incorrect and has been demonstrated to be incorrect by October 7th.
0: Right. Well, just in closing, though, you don't think... The backlash that's put the Palestinian issue back on the front burner is going to make any difference in the long run?
2: No, uh, because uh, this is a U.S. sphere of influence. uh, The only country that could produce, uh, you know, a a genuine uh, uh, attempt at uh, wide-ranging change in the status quo would be the United States, Uh, and. Uh, for various reasons, uh, the Biden administration is not going to undertake it.
0: Well, Juan Cole, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
2: Thanks for having me, in.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Juan Cole, who's a professor of modern Middle East and South Asian history at the University of Michigan. He's also the author of the blog Inform Comment at com, and the author of The Ayatollahs and Democracy in Iraq, Engaging the Muslim World, and most recently, Muhammad Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now.
3: The
1: guy that next door in